In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful, welcome, good afternoon, assalamu alaikum, and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. From Friday afternoon, drive time show with myself, Kayu, and brother Daniel, and joining us today, after a while, is brother Zakaria. Peace be on you, gentlemen. Assalamu alaikum. How are you? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Can you hear me? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, loud and clear. Loud and clear. Yeah. Awesome. How are you, gentlemen? I'm doing well. How are you? You're doing well. I'm doing well. I'm, I'm great to see you, actually. I'm doing even even better <laughs> <laughs> after you asked the question. <laughs> so how are you? Always good. All, pra- all praise belongs to Allah. Um, Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon, exactly. That was about to say. So you know, what could what's not to like? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. It is a Friday afternoon. How are you, brother Daniel? Very good. Yes, I've had a very productive week. So yeah, looking forward to chatting with you guys. Fantastic. As usual, two interesting topics that we mm. are going to be discussing over the next two hours. Um, from four to five, we're going to be talking about human rights. A right delayed is a right denied. Um, we will be talking to various guests and we'll guests, and uh, we will be. Uh, discussing between ourselves as to the meaning of uh, what is human rights um, and also, also talking about that is uh, human rights becoming uh, something of a lip service um, and uh, it's uh, <coughs> it's whose agenda um, human rights uh, affects and um, is it become a, a negotiating tool within the political scene. From five onwards we're going to be talking about Islam. Is it poised? or it is poised to be the number one religion in the world. Um, something we would love to hear from you on either of the topics. Give us a call, 0208-687-7878, or you can join us on our social media platforms at Voice of Islam UK, or you feel free to email us via our website, www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, on whom be peace. He said, the rights of man are to truly take care of people, causing them no pain whatsoever. I'm going to repeat that again, and then, you know, I, I urge you to listen to these words. The rights of man are to truly take care of people, causing them no pain whatsoever. Um, gentlemen, hmm. I mean, you couldn't get a more precise <laughs> definition and so simple. So, so succinct. Exactly. Absolutely. So, you know, so, so light on words yep. and, and yet so deep and meaningful. M- most definitely. Um, one definition is that human rights are moral principles or norms of certain standards of human behavior and are regularly protected in municipal and international law. The Human Rights Act 1998 sets out the fundamental rights and freedoms that everyone in the United Kingdom is entitled to. It incorporates the rights set out in the European Convention of Human Rights, ECHR, into domestic British law. The human rights came into force in the United Kingdom in October 2000. Brother Daniel, ECHR, isn't this what we're trying to get out of so badly at the moment? Uh, yes, well, not just ECHR, we, the whole EC, mm-hmm. uh, European Community. I mean, that's uh, no. But from from I recall when we did the show on on migration and uh, um, the, yeah. it was it was the the human rights, the European, the Rwanda issue. You mean and, that's and right. all of that? So, yeah. So absolutely. So um, yeah. So that was challenged in the uh, in the European Court, and and that's something that uh, we don't like very much at the moment. Most definitely. There are many articles of rights, 
some of which are right to life, freedom from torture, and inhuman or inhumane or degrading treatment, right to liberty and security, freedom of thought, belief, and religion. You can read all the articles on the website equalityhumanrights.com or, in fact, uh, if you read the Holy Quran, all of these, all of these topics are, are covered extensively in the true form um, of, uh, of what they really mean. So, so looking at uh, these, these uh, articles of rights, what do they actually mean for us? In the, United, in, in the United Kingdom, this act means that an individual can seek justice in a British court if their rights have been breached rather than having to seek justice from the European Court of Human Rights in France. It puts um, public bodies such as local authorities, hospitals and police must respect you and help to protect your human rights. This also means that any new laws made through Parliament must be compatible with the rights set out in the European Convention on human rights. So, I mean, I presume we're talking about human rights today because uh, of Human Rights Day, Brother Daniel? Yes, so Human Rights uh, uh, Day um, uh, is something that uh, we we commemorate uh, every year, especially here at, uh, at Voice of Islam. And Human Rights Day is observed by the international community every year uh, on the 10th of December. Um, so we, uh, we are obviously in February now. <clears throat> but... Um, it, this act commemorates the day in 1948 when the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights sets out a broad range of fundamental rights and freedoms to which all of us are entitled. It guarantees the right of every individual everywhere without distinction based on nationality, place of residence, gender, national ethnic origin, religion, language, or any other status. In studying the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the Islamic point of view, we must remember that while Islam lays down values and standards which clearly endorse the spirit and purpose of the Declaration, it does not pronounce verbatim on all the specific provisions of the document. And we can go into uh, a lot more detailed discussion on that, uh, specifically Articles 18 and 19. Um, and look at Islamic values with reference to those two articles. Well, these two articles are concerned to secure the freedom of thought, uh, conscience, religion, option and expression, including the freedom to change one's religion and to manifest uh, it in uh, teaching, practice, worship and observance, and freedom to seek, receive and impart, impart information and ideas regardless of the frontiers. The universal message of Islam brooks no territorial or racial limitations for particip uh, participation in its commun communion and proclaims these freedoms clearly and forcefully, claiming, like all religions, to be based on truth. It naturally warns constantly and repeatedly of the dire consequences, moral and spiritual, that would follow from the rejection or neglect of the values that it proclaims, but it leaves everyone free to make his own choice. Belief is a matter of conscience, and conscience cannot be compelled. Now the Holy Quran proclaims in chapter 2, verse 257, that there is no compulsion in religion. Surely the right has become distinct from error. So 
whosoever refuses to be led by those who transgress and believes in Allah, believes in a uh, creator, believes in God, has surely grasped a strong handle which knows no breaking. And Allah is all-knowing, all-hearing, all-knowing. Again, in the Holy Quran, it says, And say, it is the truth from your Lord, wherefore let him who will believe and let him who will disbelieve. Right, so this is all very nice, guys. But, but, But I have a question for both of you gentlemen here. So, you know, these are obviously... uh, lofty goals and some big statements. If you look at the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, you will see that there are 30 articles in it, um, the United Nations Declaration, that is. Um, That was passed back in uh, 1948, and it was uh, termed as a great success for humanity. And here we are in 2023, and we see rights of people violated everywhere, from north to south, from east to west. You talk about, uh, you know, whether the people in Haiti or in Rohingya or in in Bosnia um, uh, or uh, I can think of many other places, South America, Africa, um, and, and the list goes on. So because what we're doing is we're doing human rights subject to hmm. subject to political um, geopolitics, yes. geopolitical interests. Yep. Yes. <clears throat> that, that's what it. That's what it's all about. Human rights isn't about the rights of people. Human rights is um, how we can negotiate something um, um, on a political perspective. On a, um, you know, it's become a tool. Not, it's not about the rights of the human. Uh, I would say at the moment we're living in a society where. We can talk about the human rights of someone knowing that the human rights are being breached to its maximum capacity hmm. um, and walk away without a blink of an eye. We talked about human rights and we, we, we refer to the Human Rights um, Act here in the United Kingdom as well. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, going by what you've just described, if you just look look at uh, the events of last year, hmm. uh even the courts over here have allowed asylum seekers to be deported yeah. uh, to Africa, to Rwanda. Political agenda. So, I mean, uh, it's, I mean you, can, not you can delay poli- that at many human if levels. It's not political agenda, yeah. populism. Hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's okay to be racist. It's okay to, uh, to breach someone's rights as long as my opinion is being heard. Because in today's day and age... There's no middle ground anymore. Mm. You're either mm. with me mm. or against me. Or against me. Yeah. And societies can't operate that way. And unfortunately, the people who govern internationally across the globe um, <laughs> like that notion of either you're with me or against me. Because it mm. keeps people busy while they do what they want to do. Yeah. Let's go straight to our first guest um, of the show today. Uh, Tanzida Islam, who is doing her Master's in International Peace and Security at King's College University. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, alaikum salam. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, uh, Ms. Islam, do you think um, the implementation of human rights and politics are intertwined? Yes, I think human rights and their implementation are inherently political. 
Um, I think there's always a way to find a link because if we define the political as defining who gets what, when and where, it makes human rights political in terms of, of national image as well. Human rights tend to be weaponized to virtue signal and stigmatize other states. And on an international level, Western liberal democracies are supposedly a beacon for human rights compared to the uncivilized Eastern states. But you see so many blatant human rights abuses upheld by the US and Britain and France, for example. And that ranges from police brutality to excessive border force, turning away migrants and leaving them to die, hijab bans that erode religious freedoms. States will even befriend other states based on their attitudes towards human rights or even lack thereof, which makes the implementation of human rights inherently political as it affects the state's national image. So yes, as human rights and its implementation do determine who gets what, when and where it is inherently political. So uh, do you think that it is it is um, okay for um, for these so-called guarantors of, of hum- international human rights to then... Uh, despite what's happening around us in the world today in 2023, criticize Islam? Um, I think that with religious um, doctrines, is there tends to be a double standard of hmm. criticizing Islam, and it tends to be extremely unfair, and the way that it also incites hatred on Muslims themselves, especially when other religions are like similar to us, but they don't get the same flack that they do. So I think it's unfair to criticize Islam and not criticize other religions. So um, in your opinion, Ms. Islam, do you think there is equality in this country when it comes to guaranteeing uh, rights to immigrants, for example, the treatment of uh, how would you compare the treatment and the and the welcome that uh, Ukrainian refugees got versus um, the Syrian refugees, for example? Yeah, there has definitely been a differential treatment when it comes to refugees based on race. And it's disgusting how, you know, your average Brit is all too ready to give space to Ukrainian refugees, but Syrian refugees are depicted as a wave and a barbaric monolith. And it's like we suddenly have the space and resources for people that look a certain way. And I do remember a news commentator saying that they cared more just because they had blonde hair and blue eyes, just like us. And it just fundamentally points to the dehumanization of people of color and the consequences of that. And despite the Ukrainian refugees being privileged over other refugees, we've seen how like they themselves can be prejudiced towards people of color. Um, and that effectively reinforces the racial hierarchy. And it's something that's not talked about enough either, especially considering a lot of, um, you, you know, there are, neo-Nazism is like on the rise in Ukraine as well. And so talk for rehabilitating refugees tend to be more directed towards people of color and Muslim refugees instead of Ukrainian refugees that hold prejudice. And essentially it's because of white supremacy and it's self-legitimizing mechanisms that evade accountability and therefore allows inequality in the treatment of immigrants and refugees. Ms. Um, Islam, isn't it the narrative of the political class to make sure that it's us against them? It's the Ukrainian refugees against all the other refugees. Um, is, isn't that what they are trying to do and public generally are falling for that narrative? Because yeah, end of the day, think... Ukrainians, you know, irrespective of, um, irrespective of what they might be thinking, they're believing, or the fact is that they are refugees and 
they do have human rights. I mean, whether they whether they do something or think something which we may not agree with doesn't um, it doesn't take away the fact that they have rights as well. Yeah, hundred percent. I think, but in saying that, I think all refugees therefore deserve the right and deserve to be not presumed to be guilty um, just because of their skin color. I think all refugees should be taken in and treated just like how Ukrainian refugees have been welcomed in this country. I think it it just speaks to the fact that Muslims in this country are so demonized as a suspect community that therefore enables our mistreatment and the re- therefore the refugees' mistreatment by the state. But that's the that, but that's the key, isn't it? What you just said, it is by the state. It's the state who is the driver who is the driver of all of these policies that uh, and all of these narratives and this notion of populism is being driven by the state. It's not the people or the refugees. Yeah, of course it's not. Uh, Individuals can't really be judged in that same way because the state does make the policies, the state drives the narrative through different avenues such as the media and the policies themselves. So, yeah, of course it's always... So what needs to change? I think... It, the answer seems quite simplistic, but mm-hmm. I genuinely think we need empathy and accountability. And it's unfortunate that this empathy is contingent on power relations and upholding what elites <laughs> construe as national interests, and they just have, don't have that like awareness because like there isn't a mechanism to hold them accountable effectively. Where the in, the international state system system is just monopolized by powerful elites and state interests. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to dismantle the system that only values the powerful in order to be able to hold these states accountable to the standard of what human rights that we want to uphold. They say the first step to change is acceptance. Do you think there is enough acceptance in the society that there is something wrong here? Or is um, it just us? No. <laughs> <laughs> I I just think that there's so much polarization going on, especially with what you were talking about earlier about populism, um, the way that it's become normalized to demonize certain groups in society mm. and therefore drive that. You know, it's divide and conquer, like the same old tricks over and over again that cause us to be divided. Um, so there isn't enough acceptance at the moment with this polarizing um, sort of environment that we're in. Yeah, I mean, if you if you listen to the mainstream media, uh, the impression that you get is everything is hunky-dory. There's nothing wrong with anything. We've got this great declaration of human rights. It's a great achievement. Uh, it's almost, what, 80 years on. And, uh, you know, human civilization is at uh, the peak of uh, of knowledge and um, and creativity. So there is there is um, there's nothing wrong here. Nothing to be corrected. Yeah, I also think that this is part of a way to sort of because a pattern that we notice with human rights is the fact that our human rights are eroded without us even knowing, and that it's enshrined in, in policy, policies and we don't even know about it. Like the way that they try to um, erode certain human rights through states of emergency, which allow the state to like take those emergency measures and impinge on our um, rights in, in the name of public safety, for example, against terrorism. But really, it just normalizes the erosion of our human rights. Tanjida Islam, 
Thank you so much for taking time out this afternoon and coming on to the show. I wish you a fantastic evening and a weekend ahead. May peace be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Some interesting points. Um, you know, we talk of human rights and <clears throat> how many times have we spoken about the Uyghur Muslims, Rohingya Muslims, mm. Yemen Muslims, Palestinian Muslims, Ahmadiyya Muslims, um, no matter which corner of the world mm. you look at, it's the human rights which are being breached globally. The one thing that is common between most, between most, I'm not going to say all, mm. is that they're Muslims. Mm. That cannot be a coincidence. <laughs> so, uh, Brother Kayyub, you're, you're going into a very slippery slope here. You're going into conspiracy theories, are I'm you? I'm not. No, no. It's not conspiracy theories. Okay. It's the fear. It's the fear. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, you look. Well, let's say it is a conspiracy theory. But when when Iran gives 10 drones to Russia, which kills six innocent Ukrainians, hmm. It's headline news. Yes. Because Iran has suddenly become involved in the Russian Ukrainian war. Yeah. Yet we give billions of pounds mm. of weaponry mm. to the Saudis who kill hundreds and thousands of Yemenis people. Yet mm. we, yet we, we. Nobody talks about nobody it. Nobody talks about it. Yet mm. we don't mention it. Mm. And, and, a, and a drone from Iran to Russia mm. has made headline news. Mm. Is it me who's saying it's a conspiracy? Or the ones who are conspiring are, be, are successful at what they're doing? Yeah. No, I take your point. Absolutely. I think this is... Uh, uh, I mean, isn't human rights kind of lost in that equation this somewhere? Is, this is uh, really hypocritical that, uh, you know, you have certain states who are, um, who are who have very close relationship with the West, including us here in the United Kingdom, we are funding them, we are supplying them with billions and billions of pounds of weapons, which are being used on innocent people. Yeah. And and yet nobody talks about it. Uh, and yet you're absolutely right. You know, it's uh, so yeah, I think going back to the discussion we we're having, it's a, you know, it comes full circle. It's all about geopolitics. It's all about the interests. And I don't want the listener to think, oh, here we go. We're bashing the West. No, no, no. I'm going to bash anybody across the world. More, more so, Muslim countries yeah, who are saying, "Well, yeah. there is no problem of the Uyghur Muslims yeah. in China because suddenly I am deaf and I'm blind and I'm mm. mute to this atrocity because I have to trade mm. with the China." Mm. Mm. I'm not saying don't trade with China. Yeah, I'm saying open a dialogue. Absolutely. But to to say there is no problem is yeah. where the problem starts. Yeah, we completely um, ignore the fact, hence why I said, at a blink of an eye, we, we, are allow, we, 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 we allow for atrocities because to happen. Because economic interests overtake everything else here. And because that, we have a petrodollar relationship, uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, let me give you another example. Uh, when uh, human rights of Muslims are violated in another country, India, again, uh, nobody talks about it because mm. you know there there are um, 
massive trade agreements, billions of dollars worth of trade agreements are at stake. So it, it is at the end of the day, unfortunately, you know, we we have all of these lofty statements and great, uh, great proclamations. But uh, in practical in, in, in practical terms, very little of that is being implemented in the world today. Brother Zakaria, it's not, I mean, we, we've spoken of all these bills of rights. We've talked about European and, and, and laws. And Islam is not just a faith in respect of, oh, we do a salat and we read the Holy Quran mm -hmm. and, and that's about it. Islam yeah. is actually a way of life. And, Islam is a way of life, yeah. And these aspect, this particular aspect of life is very fundamental to Islam, isn't it? Because the two main fundamentals is to worship God and to serve man. Yep. If we are going to be breaching the rights of man, are we not breaching the rights of God Almighty? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, this term is quite often used in, and I use it as well. There is a Arabic term called Hakukullah and Hakukul Ibad, right? Which is uh, the rights of God mm -hmm. and the rights of you know humanity, not yeah. specifically Muslims, right? Yeah, no, exactly. That's, that's a very important Muslim. point, isn't it? And we have to remember that Islam is a religion that is a universal religion. It doesn't, it didn't limit to only the Arabs or only Muslims. Mm. It's it's a religion for everyone. It's a guidance for everyone and. And whenever God addresses people to, um, you know, give rights to others, it doesn't say give rights to your Muslim brothers and sisters. Mm. It 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 tells that it's for everyone, not not just Muslims. So, you know, whenever, you know, the first um, quotation that you just read, mm. the promised Messiah, when he when he quoted this, this is basically a short commentary of what the Quran says that mm -hmm. the rights of man are, are to truly take care of people causing them to uh, them no pain whatsoever which means that the man's right is um, that you don't cause it supersedes them. everything yeah it supersedes everything yeah let's go now to our next guest uh, Mr. Cameron Taibos who is managing editor for Beyond Trafficking and Slavery for open democracy. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be with you. Thank you very much for joining us here on Drive Time Show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, please tell us a little bit about open democracy, first of all. So open democracy is part of the British independent media landscape. It's been around for about 20 years, and for the, um, it's been focusing more and more lately on watchdog journalism. So it's been tracking the influence of dark money in Westminster, undermining workers' rights in Ukraine, destruction of the Amazon, things like this. It tries to challenge power by telling stories that larger outlets overlook. And my section, it's focused for the past eight years specifically on labor exploitation and how it, and how labor exploitation really ticks in the world today. Right. I've been doing that for about eight years now. So, Mr. Tabas, um, yeah, I'm not sure if you were uh, listening into the discussion we were having. United Nations uh, uh, achieved a major milestone back in 1948 when they uh, published this uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. Do you think United Nations has been effective in uh, in, in implementing that and, uh, and and managing human rights violations? 
No, of course not. Um, but it's also not what it's there to do, right? The UN was primarily created as a space for international politics to be thrashed out in the hopes that it would reduce states' need to go to war. It's an arena for conflicts over states' interests, primarily. And the solutions that come out of that could just as easily create rights violations as rectify them. The UN, the UN is not a humanitarian organization and never has been. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't have an uh, enforcement capacity, right? It's it's not a court. It's not the the top layer of a federal government that can tell member states what to do. It is, above all, a political fora. And to believe anything else is a fundamental misunderstanding of that institution. Okay, fair enough. Um, it- in terms of keeping the, that uh, Declaration of Human Rights uh, as a benchmark for mm-hmm. states um, to follow, how successful do you think we are in uh, in this century vis-a-vis two centuries ago? Ooh, um, it's a very different world. I mean, like what, the 1800s? I don't think anybody was talking about human rights, at least not in a widespread political capacity. They, that wasn't a drive there. Um, these days, there's a lot of talk about it, yeah. and there has certainly been progress, but we also have an enormous capacity to violate them in mm-hmm. more and more subtle ways. So I would say that, I, mean, I don't even know how you could compare the two. Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about 100 years ago. So there were wars then, there, there were wars now, there were violations then, there are violations now. Before the United Nations, we uh, only last week we were talking about the Holocaust, for example. But mm-hmm. even after the United Nations Declaration, there have been so many genocides. There have been Haiti, there's been Rwanda, there has been Bosnia, there's been Rohingya, there's been others. Um, are we are we really making progress? Are we are we really learning lessons? Because that's the favorite. Uh, sentence what most politicians come up with, <laughs> don't they? We will learn lessons. I think we're very, we're very very bad at learning lessons. Like, <laughs> um, I think w- one one of the like one of the like fascinating things about this is is the way that sort of especially democratic politics works these days is there's almost no incentive anymore for a politician to think long term, and it's the same with corporations. Like corporations 150 years ago, they did build long term. They're now all owned by hedge mm. funds and and. Um, stockholders that want immediate returns and so there's also much less incentive on on companies to to think long term and it's making it very difficult to learn lessons or to implement unpopular decisions to pursue those lessons like that's one of the reasons we've had so much trouble with the climate lately um there's there's many many reasons why decision makers ignore the lessons that they should be learning and many reasons why they pursue popular policies over good policies. Um, I do think, though, that, like, I mean, yes, there's been many genocides. Genocides are also, it's really hard to know what could possibly stop that. Um, what human rights lawyers will tell you, what, what um, worker activists will tell you and whatnot, is that we have made a lot of progress with human rights law on actually getting at least smaller level violations into the courts and and arguing on that level. Um, they do provide a bedrock of internationally recognized laws that lawyers do draw on every day um, to make arguments and to win cases. So that shouldn't be underestimated, but its power is limited. So let's let's talk about those individual cases then for a second maybe as well. Um, so you, uh, 
we we have we've had here uh we still have Ukrainian refugees which have been accepted with open, with open arms which is a great thing and and they needed our help uh, uh, so um absolutely a good thing to do um yet our courts uh, have just said that um uh, the other refugees if if you're coming from Syria you need to go to Rwanda first is mm-hmm. are, are we still paying lip service to uh to to the goals the lofty goals we we set out um to achieve we're paying selective service to them mm. right i mean we human rights are one of many many interests in this world and expedience and other interests often trump them um so i mean why Europe has been so much more willing to accept Ukrainian refugees over Syrian refugees has an awful lot to do with an awful lot of other interests than with anything to do with them being refugees, right? And so like that those decisions aren't being made on the basis of human rights. They're being argued for with some of the human rights language. But when we decide to pay lip service to human rights and when we decide not to, when we decide to actually incorporate that into our language doesn't mean that that's driving the decision making. I would never, ever trust a politician to be making that decision primarily based on a human rights consideration. Um, Cameron, if if I may, just to play devil's advocate. Sure. If we are not allowed, if we're saying the Syrian or the Afghan refugee has to go to Rwanda, mm-hmm. is that a breach of the human rights or is that just unequal treatment? It's an egregious breach of international law, human rights, all sorts of things. Um, but, but how would it be human rights? I mean, I, I agree, yes. Um, they're, they're not being treated the same as maybe the Ukrainians or, uh, or, the, refi- or the migrants coming from, uh, from Hong Kong. But mm-hmm. isn't human rights based on giving them provision where they, where, um, they have uh, um, good treatment? And if Rwanda's able, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate in a sense, saying if Rwanda's able to do that, how mm-hmm. would we, how would we define that as a breach? I, I'm not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to make that very clear. Sure. I, I am not a human rights lawyer. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that one can make a much better argument than I could. Sure. I would, I mean, certainly. It's in breach of the Refugee Convention okay. that the UK has signed. Right, the UK has signed a Refugee Convention that allows people to move irregularly across borders and claim asylum where they go to. Okay. Um, and Britain making a deal with Rwanda to ship asylum seekers over there and say that if you get if you prove that you are an asylum seeker, you will then stay in Rwanda and get services there hmm. is is contrary to international law. I don't know, I cannot speak authoritatively on sure. which bit of international law besides the human rights or besides the refugee convention, mm-hmm. but we'll just stop there then. Um, and Suella Braverman also knows that. Yep, <laughs> yep. I mean, of course, of course, this isn't, I mean, this goes back to what we were discussing here. Is it, I mean, human rights is a secondary thing. It's about, it's a political agenda, which is, which is unfortunately taken precedence. Um, in, in most of these policies. Mr. Tabas, do you think we are going backwards here? It certainly feels like it, doesn't it? Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
Going backwards in what sense? We are... I mean, are we going... So so we have this absolutely uh, awesome um, universal declaration of human rights um, mm -hmm. back in 1948. So that's a great landmark for the world. Um, and, and yet, you know, we have all of these issues that we talked about uh and which nobody, by the way, in the mainstream media wants to talk about. And everybody wants to say that, you know, there's everything is hunky-dory, everything is fine, and there's nothing to worry about here, almost. Um, yeah, so do you think we're making enough progress, or do you think we're actually going backwards here after having reached that great milestone in 1948? I think that... I think we're going backwards in the sense that we are entering an era where more and more politicians in more and more countries are finding support for for flouting human rights. Um, and they are finding great support, especially in scapegoating migrants and scapegoating asylum seekers and in building walls and in playing the tough guy. We're seeing this in the U.S., we're seeing this in the U.K., we're seeing this in... India, Brazil, all sorts of countries. Um, and it's very troubling. Um, I, I do, it doesn't, it definitely feels like we're going backwards. But, but we got to, we got to give it a, we got to give it a, we got to give it a positive to it. Sometimes you have to take one step back to take two steps forward, brother Daniel. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I, I'll give you that. All right. Okay. <laughs> I, I hope the step forward is coming sometime soon because a step backwards has been going on for a long time now. <laughs> God willing, we, we, we will be. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Tybus. Thank you. Uh, brother, thank brother, you for joining No, brother Zachariah have a, has a question. Or does uh, he? Yeah. yeah. Um, lastly, if, if you guys, um, as a question, last question for you, Cameron. Um, what do you think the next steps are in reaching equal rights, not just for specific people, for all people around the world? Excellent question. Yeah. I think it begins by recognizing that being exploited today is a is a survival strategy. Like millions of people only have a menu of bad options from which to choose from. And it's more a matter of choosing the type and severity of, ex of exploitation rather than whether or not to be exploited. And if you recognize that, that opens up a whole new way of thinking about what we should do about it. Because it basically means that banning X or Y bad thing is futile. Like all options are bad. And so, th what, like, so there's actually there's, um, a lovely American philosopher currently working in Qatar who's, who writes about the, the freedom for the power to say no and to basically say, if you want to improve people's dignity and improved access to human rights, you have to make it possible for them to say no to bad work, to bad marriages, to to anything without shooting themselves in the foot, without ending up on the streets or getting deported. And how one, how does one support somebody to say no? Well, that's what benefits, benefit systems do. That's what um, talk about universal basic income does. It's, it's trying to give people enough of a cushion that they have the freedom to say no to things that will hurt them. And that that would open up a whole new world for millions of people, for billions of people, in actually making their rights real. Do you think, Mr. Tabas, the, the world needs to, um, to uh, go back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and almost take another vow, um, uh, revisit the marriage vows there of sorts? I think this so like those sorts of questions I 
I had a very similar conversation the other day with a lawyer working with the, the Refugee Convention. Mm-hmm. And her great fear of opening up the Refugee Convention and um, trying to make it a bit more inclusive for um, the kind of refugees that we're seeing today was that, in her view, in her analysis, the politics that we have today politicians would never have signed that refugee convention. Mm-hmm. And so the fear of returning to these old documents and trying to open them up or trying to renew mm-hmm. commitment to them is that mm-hmm. it would be an absolute demonstrable statement of we no longer commit to this. It will be a massive jump backwards rather than step it backwards. It would be a massive <laughs> jump backwards. If, and and like this, this is a real fear among many mm-hmm. human rights lawyers mm-hmm. that like we got these things mm-hmm. in a stroke of luck almost yeah. at a time and a place and we can use them where we can. They're not bulletproof. They're not sure. the Bible or the Quran, but they are they're the best we have. And if you tried to do mm-hmm. them today, you'd never get anywhere. And and that says something, doesn't it? I mean, the fact oh, that yes. the human rights <laughs> lawyers are actually scared of revisiting these, um, uh, these great uh, ideals, these articles, uh, because they're scared of the politicians of today. That says something about the state that we uh, that we live in in the world today. Uh, Mr. Tybus, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for answering all our difficult questions. Uh, thank you for uh, for um, <laughs> accepting to be put on the spot. Uh, <laughs> thank you for bearing with us. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. Um, thank you once again. My pleasure. Take care. Peace Bye-bye. be with you. Bye-bye. So that was Mr. Cameron <coughs> Tybus, who is the managing editor for uh, Beyond Trafficking and Slavery for Open Democracy. Before before we carry on, uh, yeah. of course, uh, <coughs> Brother Raza has joined us this afternoon. You know, I thought to myself, <laughs> why boss, why is the boss man no, has no, joined no. us? Hold yes. on, hold on. Yes. You, you can put my mic back on. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. So we can hear you. Yeah. No. So, I, so I, I I thought to myself, why why does only one person in this group have the right for a drive-by. <laughs> why, why is that right not given to everyone? So I, right. I fully yeah. utilize yeah. that right today. Amen okay. to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as I said, you're the boss man, so you can do anything. Yes, absolutely. But, but what you did is, I mean, you, uh, you gave his de facto uh, a de jure. Uh-huh. You made that a de jure right of his. To do there drive time, <laughs> to do drive by rather than drive time. So, yeah. Brother Zakaria, <clears throat> your 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 silence is just not is not going well with me. Well, <laughs> it's, it's deafening. Yes. This this is this is look. Well, let me clarify something. This is Friday afternoon. Silence is, illegal, g- g- is yeah, illegal. Ease him into it. No, we're no, like forty five minutes into the show, and you're yeah, like, it's, <laughs> il- it's illegal <laughs> to be silent, brother. <laughs> He's well, had uh, a long commute. <laughs> Right. Let me go to our last guest uh, for this segment, uh, which is Ms. Iram Woolley, who is a human rights campaigner. She sits on Women's Steering Committee nationally and is also an activist for the Labour Party. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Peace be with you. Thank you very much for joining us, Ms. Iram. I'm not sure if you were following uh, the discussion that we were having earlier uh, with our guests, um, including with uh, Mr. Tybot. What are your thoughts on um, uh, on the progress or not the world is making towards uh, towards a more just society? Well, first of all, I am so grateful for this opportunity and great to be on your show. And I... Um, one of the main reasons I came on the show, actually, was because I feel really angry, sad, and frustrated. And I'm a bit disheartened, actually, 
because when I hear about human rights as not being given the supremacy of justice and all lives matter in the UK and internationally, I mean, how many of you can relate to that? Um, because there seems to be a huge disparity in the developed and the undeveloped world in terms of the economic and wealth as well as political stability. For example, countries like Pakistan, Palestine, Sri Lanka, Yemen and some African nations are considered to be underdeveloped, meaning that they have lower levels of economic growth, wealth compared to developed countries like United States, Europe and Japan. This actually can lead to a political instability. So people might become frustrated uh, towards opportunities and resources. And I also get angry and frustrated and sad when I see the current cost of living crisis and inflation is having a really big impact on budgets, investment, in ensuring human rights measures are being invested um, and in poorer countries. So the IMF, as you know, International Monetary Fund, they provide financial assistance to countries who are facing these difficulties, right? And they might require the recipient of the country to implement certain economic reforms, including measures to increase government revenue, such as raising taxes for goods and services. And that can put an actual pressure on the population, especially if they're having to eat into their savings. So where do we go from here? So now people are now forced to go on to food banks and other forms of support. And this can become quite a problem and in many parts of the world UK knowing that it's the sixth richest country in the world known as the uh, poverty crisis in the 21st century um, so is there enough awareness on uh, the issue of human rights in the UK and, and do you think that the Western media plays a role at all well, I think that the media in the Western world is active and people are aware and sympathetic towards human rights. Culture in the UK is well developed, so we have more human rights <coughs> conscientiousness, but there's still an issue of the proposed abolition of the ECHR, which is the European Convention of Human Rights. I'll give you an example. In the primary school where I'm a school governor, we have put in the UNICEF rights respecting schools. So you may be aware that on the 10th of December 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly. So in the school, what we do, we hope to educate the children knowing their human rights, and this ensures that the rights are being met to celebrate these rights. But we're also encouraging the knowledge of human rights, which can make the world a safer and better place. So you're probably thinking, where am I going now? I'm actually... Um, making sure that the children are at a level that they are able to carry out these when they when they become um, older. So we need to work together to find ways to make sure human rights are met globally, but we're also allowing them to know that human rights aren't always respected, met, accessed or enjoyed, and we know that, don't we, when we watch the news. But And then the last point is human rights helped protect everybody in the world so, for example, Articles Number 4, Making Human Rights Real. Article Number 41, The Best Law for Children Applies. And we are just trying to inculcate that by implementing it and making sure that the children enjoy their rights by creating systems and passing laws to ensure that children are doing that. If you go onto YouTube, you can go onto Amnesty International. 
and click on the everybody video and that will be explain it all. Mm -hmm. But basically that the United Nations is 48 countries, they've written 30 articles, which mm -hmm. are basically 30 rights and freedoms. Excellent. Uh, Ms. Erin Bully, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your input. Have a lovely weekend. Peace be with you. Thank you. Deserve thank you very much. So that was uh, Ms. Erin Bully, who is a human rights uh, campaigner here in the in the UK. Gentlemen, um, we are fast approaching the, um, uh, the five o'clock news. And before we go there, I want to ask a very important question. To you, so you know, we, we've been talking about these um, uh, the human rights declaration, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, from by the United Nations, thirty articles. Um, <clears throat> uh, Professor, um, uh, sorry, Doctor Zafrullah Khan um, has written uh, a book on um, uh, on the subject, and he has has argued that the <clears throat> Islamic system of human rights or Islam's um, uh, the importance Islam attaches to human rights can be seen from the fact that he, uh, he argues that all these 30 articles um, are not only present in the Holy Quran but also these there is actually more than what these 30, 30 articles proclaim. My question to you is why then is Islam so criticized here in the West, especially when it comes to human rights? <clears throat> because Islam has been politicized um, by and misunderstood by the Muslims themselves, unfortunately. But uh, I would like to hear what Brother Raza has to say on this. I, I think I, you're, you're, I agree with what you're saying in the sense that um, the the if you don't put the practicality yep. to display mm. of of all of these you know 30 plus articles that Islam has has suggested and not just in 1948 we're talking about 14 centuries ago then there there is no need for me or there's no reason for me to to think about Islam in, in, in the way that that we do mm. um so i think that's why it was important from from our point of view, that somebody who understood, somebody who was divinely guided, somebody who knew exactly what Islam stands for and how you put this into your personal life, how do you how do you apply that in in, in your life? How do you practice what you preach? Mm. That 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 such a person was needed in this time. And if you look at the time of the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, who was foretold by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him who was to come in a time where you would have the script, you would have the text of the Qur'an, but you wouldn't understand how you apply it. And he, he explained exactly that this will be the time where you will have, let's say, beautiful mosques, but those mosques would, want, would not be a source of, of guidance. It wouldn't be a source of wisdom. It would be a source of mischief. There's one more important aspect of what the, the promised Messiah on whom be peace are, isn't it? He said it's the end of the sword. Yeah. And it's it's the beginning of... It, it, knowledge is what he referred to. He talked about how pen is mightier than the sword. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. Brother Zakaria, I'm sure you can kind of pinpoint it for me um, if, if, I, if I put you on the spot here. But... Yeah. Um, the promised Messiah on whom be peace 
talked about how the future was all about knowledge and not bloodshed and fighting and swords and killing um, as most faiths around the world believe that the Messiah will come and do that. Yeah, yeah, that's totally right because a majority of the Muslims or you can say many Muslims, they think that the persecutions that you meant, mm. you know, you said before in the in the show as well, that is happening against the Muslims, <coughs> that's not been covered by the media or no one is actually doing anything mm. against it. And this persecution can only stop when there is unity between the Muslim nations, right? And and you also said, you know, before that Saudi Arabia, one of the Muslim countries, is killing another country, right? So this unity, like Raza, Brother Raza said, that it can only happen when you believe in a a, a divine leader, a divinely mm. appointed person who could actually lead not just the whole Muslims to believe and follow the uh, the Holy Quran. Be their spiritual guide. Be the spiritual guide, right? Then only there could be a unity amongst the Muslims. And uh, unfortunately, what I wanted to say is Muslims think that, you know, all these injustices will happen if Muslim Ummah, they gather and they fight against yeah. their rights yeah. physically, yeah. which is impossible. <laughs> This physical fight against whoever, right, uh, or the major uh, or the uh, so-called enemy, powers, yeah, yeah. so-called enemy, cannot happen through fighting. It can only happen through, you know, giving them the true teachings of Islam, and only and only by by winning their hearts, basically, by 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 you know having dialogues and and uh, uh, you know using the pen. That's what the promised Messiah referred to. I I just like to uh, read out um, a, a small excerpt from from the beginning of the book that I I just talked about. So the book is called Islam and Human Rights. It uh, it's written by Sir Muhammad Zafrullah Khan, and I would recommend uh, everybody listening to the show to to read that book. He writes, uh, Sir Zafrullah writes um, at the beginning of that book. This concisely written text presents the teachings of Islam and their distinct superiority over various articles that make up the Declaration of Human Rights adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations and universally acclaimed as the greatest charter of freedom. He then says, This book explains how 1400 years ago Islam emancipated the poor and oppressed and gave the world the basic prescription for the respect and value of all human beings irrespective of class, color or creed. Those instructions contained in the Holy Quran remain as relevant today as they were at the time that it was revealed. However, with the passage of time, some parts of Muslim society neglected Quranic teachings with an inevitable decline in moral standards. The author, however, concludes on an optimistic note that the revival of Islam is happening and with it a closed adherence to the values laid out in the Holy Quran and that revival is happening through the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam. Just to conclude the show and the hour, the promised Messiah on whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, said not to give any kind of pain to others. He said that a religion is not a religion in which kindness towards all is not taught. Our God has not differentiated between any nation 
all people are given the same powers. The world is for every nation. The stars and the sun are for everyone. Nature is for all. Food and medicine is for all of humanity. This teaches us to become open-hearted to all of humanity. You're listening to the Draft Time Show with myself, Brother Zachariah, Brother Daniel, and Brother Raza. It's a full house today. Who's um, myself? Uh, myself, sorry. Can Hello, you, brother, you, myself. brother myself. It's brother myself. Brother myself. We have a question um, on our Instagram story, which mm. is, um, what do you love most about being a Muslim? It's a, something we will be discussing from five o'clock onwards. Islam poised to become world's largest religion. We would love to hear from you on 0208-687-7878. Do join us. You can uh, message us uh, via our social media platforms at Voice of Islam UK or feel free to email us via our website, www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. And we're going to go to the news with some brief messages and we will come back and continue our discussion. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community in Islam. Thy boundless blessings and peace be upon Mustafa, O Lord. Verily, through him we receive thy light. My soul is eternally bonded to the soul of Muhammad. I made my heart drink deep of the brimful cup of this love. None better than he could I discover in the whole world. Most certainly, I have broken my heart loose from the grip of others. God's glory is reflected in your virtues, my beloved. Him I made my own by having made you mine. Having touched the hem of thy garment, O God, one is saved from being entrapped by the charms of others. Verily, I bow my head at your threshold alone. O my beloved, I swear by thy unity, in my love of thee I have become oblivious of my own self. By God, all other images have vanished from my heart ever since I had your countenance etched upon it. It was because of you that we became the best of all the peoples. O prophet of God, who is the best of all the prophets, as you marched ahead of all the rest, we too stepped forward. Let alone the human beings, even all the angels in the heavens follow suit and join me as I sing thy praise. You're listening to Voice of Islam, online, on mobile and on DAB. Welcome back to the Draft Time Show on Friday in the full house with myself, Kayoum, Brother Raza, Brother Daniel, and Brother Zakaria. Um, the topic of the hour, Islam poised to become world's largest religion. Gotcha. Um, the reason we are talking about this is uh, that with mainstream media, I mean, we actually, Brother Daniel actually referred to it um, in our first hour that every aspect of social media, mainstream media, they are so trying hard to pick on Islam, Islamic nations, and and how Islam is this, Islam is that, Islam persecutes women, Islam does this, Islam causes wars. But, gentlemen, 
which religion is the fastest growing religion in the world? That's I was about to say that. I mean, they have every, oh. they have they are well within the right. I mean, why would they not do that? There are one point nine seven billion of you, man. <laughs> some say they have a point. Listen, some say it has gone over two bill. Yeah, ah, exactly. It depends on who you listen to. And, and yet you blame them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it it is what what people. It's not a it's not the it's not a race. Hmm. I do find it fascinating mm-hmm. that in fourteen hundred years we've reached a point where we might become a faith which is practiced by m- most of the world yeah. in numbers terms. Hmm. So yeah, let let's uh, rewind a little bit. How yeah. how did we reach two billion? I mean, is it is it that uh, we've been uh, waging the sword all over the world and and killing everybody else so that mm-hmm. Muslims survive? Or actually, has it been the other way around, where the the Muslims have been on the receiving end of the sword, actually, especially in recent years, whether you look at Bosnia or um, or Rohingya or Uyghur or many others? Mm. Um, what's going on? I, I think it's I think it's their doing, isn't it? The, it is. uh, the reason why I'm sitting here, to mm. be honest, is because Islam was attacked. Yes. Right, so I've I've mentioned this, shared this here before, I think a few times. Nine Eleven was a game changer. Hmm. It, it, was it was a huge hmm. game changer. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, in the schoolyard, you had people who knew nothing about Islam. There was never even a hmm. concept of having a conversation, a discussion, a debate catered around religion. All of a sudden, it was all about Islam. Hmm. Is that what Islam stands for? Did you guys do that? Are you behind it? Is that what the Quran says? Not just students, but teachers even. Teachers were having a go at, at, at Muslim pupils and Muslim students, um, cherry-picking verses here and there. And all of a sudden, people were aware about what Islam stands for. Hmm. right? And then you have this opportunity to, to express your, 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 your faith, to express a little bit of that knowledge that you have. And it was out there. So bef- the, the time before... Look, if you think about it, was, was Islam in the mainstream media? It wasn't. It, I don't remember it. I mean, I was like 15, 16, but still, I mean, you have a recollection before. Was it in the media? Yes, here and there, uh, once in a while. But it was not as much as it, is, as, as it was after that. And then you have all of these wars, all of these expansions. But again, you were absolutely right. Muslims were always on the receiving end. Mm. There has not been, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you guys know more about this than I do probably, that there was not a single Muslim majority, so-called Muslim majority country that took over. Yeah. Or that just expanded. Mm. It wasn't. And if you go back even more at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, again, a, a huge misconception, something that people don't know. and Well, people probably do know if they research into it. It wasn't in times of war that Islam expanded. So let's let's break this down um, a little bit. So what are the issues here? So the two issues or, or, or uh, two allegations that are made against uh, Islam and Muslims. So the w- one is that Islam has been spread to, uh, through sword. So let's uh, sort of explore that a little bit more. Um, we will do that uh, probably to, towards uh, the end of the show. So we'll come back to that uh, that theme. And we'll have a guest uh, who will explain, um, uh, especially the initial phases of uh, mm. uh, of Islam, how that uh, was spread. And the other theme, of course, is which is um, which is brand- bandied about by the Western media is is the cradle, is that the growth rate, the population growth rate uh, mm. in 
Muslim countries is a lot higher than in in other countries. Uh, there might be some truth to that. Uh, I'm sure there is. Yeah. But one thing the social media, mainstream media always forget to mention is the number of people leaving other faiths. Mm. And yes, of course, there's some people who do leave Islam as well. There's, there's no denying that. Mm. Loads of people do. Um, but the number of people, I mean, uh, I think it was only... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did a show where, for the first time in in history, the when they looked at the census, the last census, yeah. uh, less than fifty percent of this nation um, believed in Christianity, and we're supposed to be a Christian nation. I think it was forty nine percent were believers, whereas most people have kind of left um, um, the faith. Um, whereas, as much as there are some people who are leaving Islam, which Again, which are highlighted and always invited to, um, you know, uh, you know, talks and forums to to speak uh, against Islam. And most of them, especially, tend to be women who've left Islam because they think Islam is a is a religion where women are persecuted. Hmm. And and it's always I have yet to find anyone who's had a conversation and not spoken about culture more hmm. than Islam, where they, they've they've kind of. Um, joined up traditions, customs um, um, with some Islamic teaching and called it religion. So, Zakaria, why are we talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons we are talking about this and this is, uh, you know, we missed out this, this point is, you know, there are many articles that people write and one of the articles that recently was published in the Washington Times was... Uh, you know, addressing this 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 issue, this article stated that the reason behind the growth in Muslims following the Islamic faith was due to the Islam advancing with the cradle and the sword. This is the the phrase that uh, the person used. In other words, the author was suggesting that the reason for the increasing advancement of Islam was due to the higher fertility rates amongst the Muslims in comparison to other faiths. Um, such as Christianity uh, and because of the advancement of Islam by force in Muslim countries in other words the sword hmm. it, it's 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 you know where whenever it's and the most powerful tool for people to convince something nowadays hmm. is the social media right media overall and the most targeted people to defame or saying that these are the worst of the worst people. They don't give, you know, they forcefully convert people mm. or they don't give the rights for, uh, f- for their women. There is no rights at all, etc., etc. Always and always covering and saying that Muslims are the worst. But still, there is increase of, of Islam and Muslims are converting even, even though they're yeah. seeing and being influenced by the social media, right? So what's... Why is it so? I, I have a question for three of you um, before we go to our guest. Um, is this not... I don't want to be in a position where we're shooting the messenger. And by that I mean that this, this article is being written mm. based on yeah. practices of people in so-called Muslim countries. Books been written by so-called clerics mm. or so-called Islamic scholars historically who themselves have said how Islam has spread by the sword. Mm. So, 
I would ideally like to keep a balance here as much as this 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 article is and to challenge challenge it outright but um the solution to always the 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 solution always is to identify where the problem lies or the stems from and there is equal responsibilities where western media and the wrong understanding of islam by mm. some so-called muslims is the reason why this these kind of articles get written mm. and nobody challenges them let's try and um again understand that a little more uh, by going to our first guest uh, who is Ms. Maria Loza who is uh, originally from Spain but currently she lives in London she's a nurse by profession and became Muslim by choice in 2013 she joined the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the same year and since 2019 she has been acting as the deputy editor for the Spanish edition of the Review of Religions which is a magazine founded by the promised Messiah over 100 years ago Assalamu alaikum peace be with you a very, very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. I'm Samakum. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to speak to you, uh, Ms. Losa. Can, can I start by asking you, um, there is so much noise against Islam, especially against um, uh, how, supposedly, how women are treated in Islam. What attracted you to Islam? Uh, well, uh, that is uh, a very broad question, and um, I can stay hours and hours discussing uh, what, what attracted me to, to Islam. Uh, but if I try to be concise, um, I can say that Islam is is important for me because it's, it's my way of life. Islam is a religion that uh, makes my life uh, complete, meaningful, and um, it gives it gives a purpose. Uh, which I believe is the the only purpose that human beings have, uh, which is worship God in this life and ultimately uh, ultimately attain His pleasure um, in this life and the next. Um, I think Islam also guides you and helps you to do that, uh, which I believe other religions, uh, in one way or the other, can lack on on that guide and help that we need as human beings. And I think Islam also. Um, teach you how to fulfill that purpose and uh, find a way through the example, of course, of the Holy Prophet and, and all of the prophets has um, given message to to, to humanity. Um, so I think Islam, uh, once you practice, once you practice Islam, becomes the way of living and, and is part of you, and um, and there is no other way you can kind of live without Islam. Um, kind of moving forwards. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, you found the best way of living, uh, which is the only faith which tells you the best way of living is Islam. That's why, uh, you know, you uh, found Islam the most important faith, right? Yes, right, yes. So, um, just one question, it's related to my own experience when I went to Spain for a few years ago. Uh, His Holiness um, Hazrat Mizza Masur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, he sent us to Spain. So before, and this was my first time going to uh, any Spanish country, actually. Um, so uh, His Holiness, you know, as um, as a student of, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community <laughs> and um, uh, as a live devotee, we, ha- we are sent to... Um, you know, south 
uh, southern countries, uh, uh, you can say Spanish countries, uh, could be uh, uh, South America or Spain overall. So I realized when I went there that the people are very close to God compared to the northern areas. You know, when you take America, Canada, or the European northern countries, the people in Spain are very close to God because we used to have you know, our personal conversation and the one question that we used to ask quite often with the youngsters, not with the elderly. We used to focus the youngsters and we used to ask, you know, do you have any experience of acceptance of, of your prayers when you, you pray uh, to God? And of course, before that, we pr- you know, we asked, do you believe in God? And most of them, they did believe in God and they also prayed to God. So, um, why is it that Spain is more inclined towards God and and believing God um, and and is there also a link with Islam and, and the Spanish people um, do you think that in Spain a lot of people are converting to Islam as well because they have this concept of God in them well um, yeah I think I think people can find maybe a easier way or easier link between Christianity and Islam, also both religions, uh, as we know, they are have a lot of, a lot of similarities with each other. Um, but I, I mean, in my case, um, I I converted to Islam because um, my my Christianity, I mean, my my background as a as a Catholic Christian Catholic, um, it didn't really fulfill. Uh, my purpose and and I didn't find or I didn't have a link uh, that connection with God as as I later on for example I I developed uh, with Islam Um, I think in my case um, I found many many kind of gaps with Christianity that um, my teachers or the priests weren't able to to fulfill because in many ways Christianity is more like a I found myself as a as a ritualistic religion, um, and not as as a practical. It cannot, it, sometimes it lacks in teaching you the way how to um, basically develop that connection with God um, and 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 how to to find as as you were mentioning before the answer of prayers. I mean, when I was a Christian, I did pray. And um, I, I cannot remember any any moment that uh, God uh, answered my prayers mm-hmm. um, because um, maybe I wasn't even uh, actually um, taught how to how to pray or how to develop that. That's why I'm saying that in some ways Christianity have gaps, whereas Islam I, I think um, creates that that pathway that way of worship uh, and 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 of course following the the steps of the holy prophet salam busy upon him uh, is 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 how you can learn that uh, those those ways of of um, attaining that connection and that closeness with god um but yes yeah, true that uh, the presence of of uh, god is more um in spain and southern southern america um, and, and hopefully, yeah, that will be a kind of a bridge for people to, to come closer to Islam. Also, in, in Spain, the history, the Islamic history, especially in the south of Spain, is is still there, is present there after the Muslims conquered Spain, and they they kind of created a, a, a kingdom there, uh, which you know lasted 
for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's also my prayer. I hope many more Muslims, Spanish Spanish people, become become Muslims in the future. Yeah. So you know the thing you mentioned that uh, in Islam we believe that God is a living God, and to connect to this living God you need to be consistent in in prayers if there is no set pattern on how to pray and what to pray and when to pray then how can someone you know connect to god you know it's it's not easy for people to make it easier for people uh, it's it's that's why islam has a set pattern where we pray and connect ourselves and remind ourselves five times daily uh but i don't know if i've asked you this question uh, and, and which, which is a very important question uh how did you become uh muslim or how did you hear about the islamic faith well i mean as you said before in spain we have um the, the islamic history so obviously when when we were growing up and we were going to school the uh, islamic history was there and we learned it in a school um and then growing up uh, of course media also um played uh, a role you know when they i mean they they portrayed an image of islam which is of course false um but um it it kind of um puts puts uh, some negativity in my mind uh, regarding islam so to be honest i never thought that i will convert to islam mm-hmm. um but it was uh, later when i kind of uh, became agnostic when i i started uh, i i started becoming more interested in in religion and kind of to find a way to find a purpose because i realized that um uh, as a christian or at that time as agnostic as i said i found that my life didn't have a purpose and i was kind of trying to i was thirsty for for try to find a purpose over life because mm-hmm. I was realizing that we wake up in the morning, we go to work, we come back, we have dinner, we go to sleep, next morning the same thing, we wake up, we go to work, and then our lives carries on and goes like, like this, and and then you you are in your deathbed, and then you think, okay, that, this is it, this is my life, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to... To, to the graveyard and, and there is no more to it. Mm. So I was having those thoughts thinking this must be something else. Uh, this must be uh, uh, something that I should attain some some purpose, a true purpose. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was investigating the different religions uh, and I came across to Islam and that was, this one was one of my first questions that I will um ask and that will I will try to find an answer for and and straight away islam um gives an answer to this and and as i said before uh, the whole purpose of, of our creation uh, by god almighty was to worship god um in this life and to uh, gain higher and higher um spiritual levels and to grow spiritually and and to attain his purpose his his um, pleasure in this life and the next so that was one of the things that was um really important for me and that of course answered these um questions that i had um, and as I said before, also Islam kind of gives you that practicalities, um, as you mentioned, the, the 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 set of prayers, the fasting, 
um, the the charity um, modesty for women. You know, there are many uh, things that you start doing when you become a Muslim that helps you to become closer and closer to God. And then you see, you have that conviction. Uh, definitely that conviction that God sees that is a living God and answers your prayers and is there for you. Um, so once you have that conviction, there is no other way you can look away and, and try to, to live another life. The, <coughs> you, you talked about uh, modesty. Um, how did you personally reconcile with that uh, part of Islamic teaching, uh, especially given uh, the huge backlash there is in the media at the moment around hijab? Well, uh, of course, um, if, if at, at first it was something that I found difficult and I didn't understand why uh, women need to um, um, wear hijab at, at, at first, I said at first, but hmm. when I started a kind of investigating and, and, and trying to understand the um, uh, reasons behind, uh, then it, of course it became, it, it became full sense, uh, became more understandable for me. And actually I, I reconcile this teaching with, with Christianity because in Christianity, as you know, um, Virgin Mary plays a huge role and um, she's always portrayed with uh, hijab yeah. with veil yeah. in all of the statues in churches and everything and also yeah. the nuns ironically mm. nuns in Christianity also wear veil mm. so um, I, I realized that actually this is not something which is strange to me it has been also part of, of Islamic so pardon, sorry in Islamic um, Spanish history and Spanish practices within religion so, um, and then studying the Holy Quran and studying the sayings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, blessings be upon him, um, I realized that actually modesty is something that um, is a choice. First, it's a choice, but but at the same time, it's a kind of an advice that God is telling us um, and giving us that uh, this is is going to be better for you if you do this and if you use the hijab and, and wear modest clothes um, because that modesty and that virtue is what is going to be uh, presence and, and we'll, we, we will be different from other women. We will be seen as women, as uh, believing women, that we believe in God and we uh, fulfill or we try to fulfill our our duties towards God and towards uh, our fellow beings. Um, so for me, was was as a as a commandment from God and as part of that conviction, um, uh, I started praying and of course you know I I started doing all of the different um, practices that Muslims do. So um, using the hijab and wearing the hijab was just another one of them and and I felt that if God is asking me to pray five times a day, if God is asking me to do Ramadan once a year, if God is asking me to be good with everybody, to, to give charity, to help the poor, help my neighbors um, and be good to my family, to my friends, of course, uh, again, 
wearing hijab was one of those and I, I kind of pick and choose which one I, I want to do and which one not. So, yes, sure. it, it came as an easy thing for me to, to adopt. You've been now uh, a practicing Muslim for, for 10 years. Have you found the hijab to be restrictive in any manner? No, absolutely not. Um, I I can fulfill my. I I can I can have a, a normal life with the hijab and and mm. and no 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 hasn't restricted me at any time. I mean it's it's true that sometimes in Spain, especially in certain areas, always there is certain prejudice uh, attached to to the veil, but. Um, <coughs> Once you explain and you and and they they see that you are not you know um, somebody who is going to do any harm to them the opposite because actually that's the that's the teaching that um, the Holy Prophet said that you have come to this world not to do harm to others but the opposite so so actually it's it's an honor for for a woman for a Muslim woman to have the veil and and be distinctive in that way um so yeah answering your question i i i i don't i don't remember and i don't think i haven't had any any problems um after adopting the the use of the veil um if i may just ask one final question um the question we're asking um, our listeners on instagram as well what do you love most about being a muslim well, <laughs> that's a difficult question. There are many things. <laughs> there are many things um, uh, that you know we love in Islam. Um, but um, I mean, I will say prayers, prayers, salat, prayer uh, as as is the the way of of connecting with God. And and there is nothing more beautiful than that knowing that God is there listening to you and and you have that link um to to attach to him so i will say that's that's the the best part to to have that connection with God and knowing that God is there and having that conviction fantastic during the prayer fantastic thank you so much for taking time out and coming on the drive time show i wish you a fantastic weekend ahead may peace be with you Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. The, we've received other um, answers of the same question that we're asking on Instagram mm. story. We've had answers like the peace that comes with it. Mm. Um, we've had answers like being able to believe. Um, all questions regarding life are answered. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, caliphate is, uh, is the reason why... Um, someone says that uh, they love most about Islam. But I want to go back to um, this issue of cradle and this issue that Muslims are, um, they're they're having more children and, and, and hence the problem isn't that Muslims are having more children. I think it's the fact that Everybody else is not having enough children. <laughs> they're, they're, or they're they're keeping the children Muslims. Well, that or, or they have made a calculated decision in costing life, yeah. and they have chosen to go down the route where we want things 
rather than spending money on having ch- children. Well, isn't, isn't that also attached to religion then? Well, of course it is. It but, is, but right? they But they never go there, is it? Yeah. Because they have this notion of, well, the world's resources are running out. Not realizing, hold on, God created this earth. The resources will never run out. And, and the next generation are the resources exactly. that are running out. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's the problem. So, you know, that within itself answers the question that it's not that Muslims um, are having more children. Um, that's not the weakness. Um, it's the strength. The weakness lies with people who choose to make, um, to cost the notion of, can I afford to have a child? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that notion itself the, is the, wrong. The exact philosophy which Quran actually negates. Exactly. And Quran says that yeah, we will we will provide we provide for every newborn. So don't. How many times do children. you come across? Look, I, I again from from a non-Muslim household where you will see that the children are are as engaged with their faith, whatever faith mm-hmm. that is, mm-hmm. as as in a Muslim household. Well, faith is not important elsewhere, uh, even that, in other Muslim saying. households yeah. as well. I, I should say, but but generally speaking, faith is just not it's 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 not an issue anymore. Yeah. It's, I tell you why. What do we always talk about? Faith has been compartmentalized. Hmm. We talk of faith as a way of life. So every aspect of our life is part and parcel of believing in God. Hmm. But, When we wake up in the morning, yeah, you see. We, we we talk of we, we have a prayer. But that's the thing. As as a parent, you you make sure that your child is attached to that faith. That's right. What I'm what I'm asking and what I'm saying is that you for even look from the from the Islamic perspective, when it when it comes to the narrations of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah you put him and how he encouraged that as a parent, how do you keep yourself how do you keep your children attached to, for example, prayer? Hmm. And he did mention that at a certain point you will have to be a little bit strict. Yes, you will have to be a little bit more forceful, not just you know, grabbing them by the hair mm. and what. No, no, mm. I'm, I'm just saying that you have to. You, just have, like to you, you have to be a parent. You have to be a parent. Exactly. Yeah, just like you send your children to school. Yes. Sometimes yeah. you have to strict. Sometimes you have to wake them up. Even so if, it's even not when a problem there. It's called yeah. discipline. It's yeah. not a problem yeah. there. But when it comes to faith and religion yeah. and sending them into the mosque, it's all of a sudden, oh my God, how can you do that as a yeah. parent? That's right. And that's exactly what Muslim parents are doing, in my opinion. I mean, for example, within the community, we make sure that our kids go to these classes in the morning. Yeah. It, from the age of six or a, age of seven. My my son, because it's like, what, seven, seven fifteen, he wakes up anyways for school. 6.45 is prayers. He's up for the prayers. Yeah. And I take him down. And sometimes, you know, when you look at other religions, other faiths or people, other families, general families, There, there is no concept of that faith. Playing devil's advocate. Why are you making your child do Because that? Because I'm a father. I'm a father. Live with it. That, What are you going to do? That's it. You see, there's the answer. Because, and, and you're so right, brother, that when it comes to religion, you are manipulating your child's mind. You're indoctrinating your child's mind. I am, I am because <laughs> But the tone of voice it's is... It's good for me, oh, it's good for him. And the latest one is, hmm. and the, the misrepresentation and total inappropriateness of you're grooming your child. Yeah. I've yeah, had okay. worse. I've had worse. Oh, trust me, I've had worse. Yeah. There, there's people, but when, I, when, hmm. when you explain the concept hmm. of atfal and, you know, the yeah. race when you start at the age hmm. of six and seven... I don't know if I should say that here. Mm. They compared it to to the Hitler Youth. Really? Yeah. 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 So yeah. I've had people throw throw sure. these things at me as well. No, but the simple But, answer is that you, as you said earlier, we do it because we we know 
that um, that 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 the answers to the to the world's problems, the answers yeah. to our own problems, the answers to uh, it, to what we are always grappling with, to the purpose of our life, lies in Islam. First topic. Yeah. What did we talk about? Human rights. Human rights. Yeah. All those thirty, you know, the uh, the, the declaration. Articles, of human, yeah. All those thirty articles, one to one, from the first to the last, one to one, found in Islam. Yeah. So if you want the solution, give the next generation mm. the answers to those things. Tell them how to live that life. Tell them how to apply these 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 articles, not just you know. Uh, lip, freedom, lip service, freedom. but apply them in your life, and then you ha- you will have that society that you want. You see, this is this is what what makes me laugh, um, and I find it ironic that we teach the next generation about freedom, hmm. yet we are in in we're living in a society within the developed world, and 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 not far behind is the is is the other parts of the world who tend to think that West can never do wrong. Hmm. We are seeing the results of this narrative that everyone's free. Yeah. And you are free to do what you want, when you want, how you want. And it is okay to to drop the parameters and drop the boundaries because freedom is infinite. There is no boundaries. What about values then? I mean, if, if No such thing. Get, get, no, yeah, you're yeah. allowed to challenge those. Yeah. Just be yeah, good. Just don't break the law. That's exactly. Right. And... Anybody, in, in, you know, irrespective of which uh, uh, which faith you belong to, which society you come from, will have to agree when they look at this world that the world is broken. Yeah, some because people, we have um, because we them. have um, we have allowed the youth or the or a certain aspect of generation to go astray to go astray and to say challenge the freedom. Yeah, yes, challenge it. And no, no person better yeah. than to answer some of these questions. Then our next Imam, the next uh, guest Absolutely. of the afternoon, him. we have with us Imam Muhammad Ahmad Khurashid, who is uh, Imam of the Amdi Muslim uh, community, serving as a missionary in Manchester. Good afternoon, welcome, Assalamu alaikum, and peace be on you, and thank you for joining us, Imam Khurashid, this afternoon. Wa alaikum salam. I completely forgot to go live. I was so inspired to talk just now. I completely forgot. <laughs> Welcome to Friday. <laughs> yeah, that's what Kayyum Sahib, uh, as you know, Brother Kayyum does to you, uh, Brother Khushit. So, Brother Khushit, we, uh, you know, we've uh, sort of compartmentalized this segment in um, uh, in two different areas. So, the first part was we explored the cradle. We explored why Islam is uh, is spreading. Now, what what is enticing people towards Islam? Why uh, people are still uh, wanting to become a Muslim? And we spoke to a recent convert uh, from Spain. The other aspect, uh, the other allegation that is made against Islam is that the roots of Islam um, are uh, lie in blood. That Islam was actually spread from the word go um, uh, through the sword. And the allegation that's made there is that the first battle that was that was actually uh, fought, which is the Battle of Badr, um, which which happened right after uh, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, emigrated to Medina from Mecca, where he was born. Uh, the Battle of Badr was an aggressive war. Um, do you think there is any truth to that? Well, that it's an interesting question. This. Um with some background in history, if anybody reads into the history of Islam, and if I was to just tell you that Muslims suffered severe persecution for 13 years, the Prophet's own daughter passed away 
due to persecution. His closest allies and companions were killed in the most horrific manner. He tried to migrate twice. His companions first went to uh, modern-day Ethiopia in Africa. Then, under the instruction from God Almighty, they migrated to the city of Medina, including the Prophet, peace be upon him. Then the Quran says that seek God's help through patience and prayer. After 13 years of all of this, having tried everything, they then migrate to Mecca. Then the war takes place. There's 313 Muslims against 1,000 strong, well-equipped with the modern weaponry of that time against 313 poorly equipped Muslims. If anybody, anybody sane says to me that the Muslims, they initiated the war, I would think to myself, this makes absolutely no sense. Could the Prophet not raise an army of 300 in Mecca? Why did he migrate? Why did he go to, to, to Ethiopia? Why did he migrate to, to Medina? Right? So what it is, this is very much, uh, <clears throat> they like to, uh, to showcase Islam in a way as if this is the most horrific faith you know, uh, in the world and everything happens through the sword. Having known this information that the background of Islam was that they faced the most horrific forms of persecution. Now when we come to the caravan, which is the question in, you know, that people have in mind, hmm. this caravan was being led by Abu Sufyan, one of the leaders of Mecca at the time. The caravan itself was heavily guarded by around 50 people. Now these caravans with the prophet they brought in, they would raise an army because the Meccans never truly accepted that the Muslims, they left their town overnight. They wanted revenge, they wanted to eliminate Islam. So the prophets coming from these caravans were being made, were being utilized to raise an army. The prophet knew something was going on. The next thing they did is that when the Muslims, the prophet sent a few Muslims to go and find out the the reasons and, and the, the aims behind the, this caravan, they in turn send the word to Mecca that we're under attack from the Muslims. We need to raise an army right now and send it to, to Badr, the place where the, the battle took place. And an army of 1,000 people, now you tell me, how can an army of 1,000 at a moment's notice, 1,500 years ago, arrive in a place, in a certain location to fight? Never happens like that. That means things were underway, they were prepared to fight against the Muslims already. And again, when the numbers, when we look at the numbers, 313 against 1,000, <clears> it makes absolutely no sense, right? Except that the Meccans were ready to eliminate Islam and they were using different techniques. The caravans were used for a very clever purpose, to transport goods and to. And there was weaponry. History tells us that weaponry was also being shipped through these caravans. Now, the Prophet, peace be upon him, of course, one of the aims after migration was to save Islam, was to save the Muslims, right? So when we go to the Quran, <clears throat> again, these people, they don't want to study the Quran. All they want to do is go on Google, say that Islam is a very dangerous faith, and they will give you the right websites, right? If we study the Quran, the first verse which permits us to fight is in Surah Al-Hajj. This verse was revealed in Medina, not in Mecca. And the verse tells us that permission to fight is granted to those against whom war is made. That means only self-defense is permitted according to the teachings of the Qur'an. Now can the Prophet go against the Qur'an? Absolutely not. He was the one who taught the Qur'an. 
That means he knew that war was about to be made against the Muslims and he had his men ready, although much less in numbers, not equipped at all, but he had his men ready in case the war did take place. And then the verse is very interesting when we go on. <clears throat> the verse tells us that they are those who have been driven out of their homes unjustly only because they affirm our Lord is Allah. And if Allah did not repel the aggression of some people by means of others, pastors and churches and synagogue and mosques wherein the name of God is off commemorated would surely be destroyed. This is very, very important. This is to God faith. And your discussion just prior to this, that, you know, people criticize faith. This is to save faith from faith being eliminated. So God, the Almighty, gave permission to Prophet Muhammad only states and the other churches and the other synagogues and the other places of worship but only as the last means of defense the prophet peace be upon him was never the aggressor never was there an instance where his army was larger than the opposing army the aggressor is always stronger and more prepared Right? So when we have these points in our mind, it makes absolutely no sense for anybody to raise this allegation that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was the one who, who instigated this, this war. So where, Imam Khushid, does this uh, narrative then emanate from? Because this narrative is not just a Western narrative. This is also an Eastern yeah. narrative. Many uh, Muslims also say that uh, Muslim scholars of sorts say that Islam was actually spread through the sword. Well, it's it's ignorance. Hmm. It's people who haven't read the Quran. Is it is it ignorance or is it also agendas? Maybe. Yeah, we could say agendas. That's something else. Maybe for another day. But ignorance is absolutely one of the main reasons why people think this certain way. I mean, how is it possible if our beloved Prophet peace be upon him suffered the worst of persecution? Right? He could have said, "I've had enough." In fact, his companions came to him one day and said, "The the old Prophet." We are ready to go to war now. We've had enough. You know, this is whilst they were in Mecca. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, he, he brought his companions in and he told them that you've seen nothing yet. He could have told them, let's go and fight right now. You, you know, um, my companions are ready. I'm ready. Let's go and fight. But he told them that continue praying because our true um, uh, victory lies in prayer. And the time hasn't come for me to say, to, to sort of defend uh, Islam to defend my faith. So really, it's people who haven't. I mean, I, this reminds me of uh, <clears throat> um, of somebody who was kidnapped by one of these terrorist organizations. And whilst coming out, he actually he had read the whole of the Quran, right, and he was inspired with the teachings of the Quran. So he asked one of the terrorists who had uh, kidnapped him, "That have you read the Quran?" He said, "No, I haven't read the Quran." So this person, who, <laughs> and uh, I'm uh, I'm not sure which which. Uh, which teaching or who had taught him about Islam, he was ready to go and kill people, having never read the Quran. Mm. Right? So these things are very, very important for us to know, that we have to judge the, the criteria by the Quran, and the Quran doesn't permit it. This, this reminds me of, uh, was it uh, uh, that uh, Dutch uh, politician? Geert Wilders. Geert Wilders, when uh, he commissioned one of his closest allies to write a book against Islam, and he went and... Uh, started researching Islam. Yeah. Oh, and, no, it wasn't him. 
and he converted. No, no, he did not convert. Not, not, no, his, his <laughs> ally. Oh, it's a, yeah, the his ally, yeah, the guy yeah, who actually yeah. researched yeah, it. Not yeah. here to this, yeah. Um, he, he said it's impossible that after reading There's the There's many Quran, cases like that where they, they no, go out to actively find something wrong with Islam and then they say, hold on, that's completely but, but that's the not point, what I expected. That the number of cases there are are loads, but they never get highlighted. Yeah. Nobody ever speaks about yeah. them. Um, but You'd be surprised. I mean, uh, Raza, you know, he works as a missionary in that area. I work in Manchester. You, you'll be completely surprised at the number of people that come to meet us missionaries and say um, that we read the Quran and we found nothing, um, you know, the way media portrays things. Yeah. I'll give you an example. So we had a, a, an event uh, at the mosque, like an open day. So we traveled to nearby villages and we invited them and we said, you know, you're most welcome to come. So about 20 people from a particular village, they were prepared to come and they had signed up for the event. On the morning of the event, they decided not to come. And somebody, and I, of course, I was curious as to why you know, 20 people opted out. So I, I went there, met them and they said, look, somebody was telling us that if you go to a mosque, they will give you, you know, they will teach you all forms of things to take your faith away. Mm. And they will force you into become to submitting to Islam, and I, and I was so surprised. And these were people who were very otherwise in their worldly matters and their day-to-day lives. They were very well educated, right? So that made me think that it's very, very easy for people to come up to a conclusion without doing their studies, yeah. without studying that particular faith, and they make up their mind that Islam is a very violent faith, and that's including some Muslims. Yeah. Um, they will feed you so much biryani that you will. <laughs> reevaluate your your Thanks. values. No, you're absolutely right. And I think from 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 the voice of Islam perspective, we have so many listeners who write to us, who send us that feedback, who you know emails and 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 letters and whatnot, um, who who express the same uh, exactly you know th- those feelings that you've just described that we we we've come to see um, a a picture or a side of Islam that we did not know existed. And how this religion is compatible with the 21st century and how we can apply it into our lives and not just something that you keep it in a closet and open up on a, on a Friday when you go to the mosque for Jummah prayers. Right, and, right. and we greatly appreciate that feedback that we get on a regular basis from, from our listeners. And that's exactly what the point was of starting this, this station when His Holiness did that inauguration in 2016. And he said that God willing listeners of this station will come to realize that Islam has the solutions that Islam is not at odds with with our you know values that we hold here in the in the west i mean although we are muslims no doubt about that but gr- having grown up here in this society we 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 have the same values that people in this society in this country have and right. they're not contradictory to what we believe as muslims as as a religious person and that's something i think people need to realize um just for the benefit of the listener, the the politician I was referring to was, is it Joram or Horam Van Claveren? He was um, uh, a member of uh, Geert Wilders' far-right Dutch party yeah. um, that he announced um, back in 2019 that he had converted to Islam because when he researched it, um, he couldn't find any fault um, with it. In fact, he was a second politician. There was one before him as well. Um, Imam Khurshid, if I may... I know we we've uh, we've I mean we've we've determined that it's basically ignorance uh, that has been the the driver 
um, for this narrative of Islam being um, um, spread by the sword. Um, and, you know, as His Holiness, the fourth caliph of the uh, Promised Messiah, uh, Hazrat Mizat Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on his soul, um, he said that swords can win territories, but not hearts. Forces mm. can bend heads, but not minds. I mean, so, so uh, you know, it, it, it couldn't be said in a better manner. But the most important bit is it not to look forward and to what is now. And the whole purpose... Um, um, of challenging the ignorance is uh, the, the the foundation of the Ahmadiyya Muslim movement, the coming of the second uh, the second coming of Messiah, um, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, his purpose is to ensure that that ignorant that message that has been um, has, has been um, spoken about at that time. Uh, needs to be challenged and 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 the authentic um, message of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him is to revive and that can only be done through knowledge and the pen look that's absolutely right the only way to beat ignorance is to educate the masses and the the example that raza gave of, of voice of islam that's a perfect example and the promised messiah peace be upon him one of his um, titles uh, was Sultanul Qalam, the king of the pen. Hmm. And, uh, you know, when he started writing books in defense of the Prophet, peace be upon him, all of these allegations were there. But he thought to himself, and he was instructed by God Almighty, that the, the coming, the Messiah will not fight against others. In fact, he will, the way the Prophet's being attacked is in the same manner will he defend the Prophet. So the Prophet wasn't being attacked through so what he had passed away 1400 years ago, right? So articles were being written, publications were being sent out, misinformation was being sent out, you know, as they call it, um, a, a fake news, right? Mm. And they were making up all sorts of stories about the Prophet, peace, peace be upon him, about the Quran, and then trying to falsify the claim of the Prophet. So he, uh, I was reading somewhere that he, re he answered thousands of allegations against the Prophet <laughs> in his, in his uh, latter teen years. So you can see... <clears throat> <clears throat> the amount of work that he did to defend the honor of Islam, the Prophet, peace be upon him, has never been done before. And this is the same thing that we we, we, we strive to do, is to defend Islam in the proper manner, as, as it was shown by the Promised Messiah. Um, so the Promised Messiah, just to finish off, um, um, he wasn't just a defender of Islam, was he? He defended all faiths. He, he was never about divisions. He was about <laughs> unifying. Which, was, which would be the true essence uh, and the true meaning of the Messiah coming and bringing the world together. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the verse of the Quran, which I recited, it says that even you have to defend mosques, synagogues, churches, wherever the name of God Almighty is mentioned, you have to defend that place of worship. And rightly so, you've mentioned that the promised reformer, he's come to reform man mankind, not just the Muslims. Right? The Prophet of God Almighty comes to reform uh, the nations that he has been sent to, right? And he has come as a Muslim, as a follower of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And because the Holy Prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, was sent for all of mankind. So him being his, 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 uh, his representative in the latter days, he has also come to revive the teachings of Islam and to portray the beautiful teachings taught by God Almighty uh, about, about Islam. Wonderful. 
Imam uh, Muhammad Amal Khurashid, thank you so much, sir, for taking time out this afternoon and coming on to the Drive Time Show and, uh, and enlightening us on the topic. I wish you a fantastic evening and a weekend ahead. May peace be with you, sir. Thank you. Jazakallah. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam. Gentlemen, we are coming up to the end of the show. So, um, your your um, if I'm going to go to Brother Daniel. Yes. So I think we should uh, we have um, established enough facts to debunk both theories, mm-hmm. uh, both conspiracy theories. May if I may say uh, that number one, Islam was spread through the sword, <coughs> which it wasn't. And number two, that uh, Muslims uh, somehow are are, are producing um, um, uh, more Muslims. Um, <laughs> 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 Maybe Muslims. For a better phrase. Procreation. Exactly. Um, so I think, yeah, if, if anybody has uh, still has doubts, I would um, strongly recommend if you just joined, please do go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording of uh, of this show or the last part of this show, the last hour of this show, uh, where I think we've uh, amply clarified now that Islam is uh, Islam means peace. Islam means submission. Uh, and uh, there is nothing to fear from Islam. Brother Zakaria. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it's clear to to everyone now. And and you mentioned the Voice of Islam website, but also for those who are interested to learn more about uh, Islam, Ahmadiyyat specifically, you can also visit alislam.org, which is our uh, official website. Um, uh, That's alislam.org. And I'm sure that those who were listening, you know, attentively, uh, you would have found the answers to your questions if you had any you know misunderstandings in regards to Islam and how it is spread and I'm pretty sure by seeing how it is spreading you can you can clearly notice that Islam is not spreading through the force or um, through the sword or weapons but it, in fact you know the teachings of Islam is actually winning the hearts of of the people and I'm pretty sure that if you learn and if you study the Holy Quran, you will find the answers uh, to your questions about Islam. Brother Raza. If you haven't visited a mosque, then by all means do so. If you don't know how to go about doing that, get in contact with us and we'll put you uh, in contact with the closest mosque. By 2075, it is predicted that Islam will be the world's largest faith. But as my brothers have mentioned, it will not be through the sword. It will not be through force. It will not be through coercion. It will be through conquering the hearts. Like Brother Daniel said, the literal meaning of Islam is to submit, submit to the will of God. What's the will of God? Peace. Thank you to our producers, Amtulbari Maheen and uh, um, Amtulbari Maheen Khan and Barira Ahmed. Thank you to our brother Akib in tech. Thank you to Brother Raza. Thank you to Brother Daniel. Thank you to Brother Zakaria. Thank you to all of our guests for coming on the show this afternoon. Please forgive any shortcomings on our part until we meet again. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.